0: We've been taking some time to work through aspects of the story of David, particularly as you find it in 2 Samuel, and that's part of the passage that we've been going to get the last number of weeks.
1: And we're going to do that again. For a couple of weeks there, we
0: just took a huge chunk of it. We really worked our way from about chapter 13 of 2 Samuel into uh, chapter 2 of uh, 1 Kings, trying to get a sense of the story. And now what we're going to do is we're going back in and look at different aspects of it, dipping into it, to highlight some things from it. And we're going to do that this evening. First of all, i have like to ask you a question. Um, if I were to ask you for place names that you associate with um, for, uh, important political events uh, or religious events, what sort of names would you come up with? What are the places that really spare to mind when I say politics? Yeah. Who? Davos, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Sorry? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, yeah. Capital Hill. Capitol Hill, yeah. Anyone
1: else? Stronghold. Did I hear a Stronghold Anyone
0: That's because you read so much <laughs> <laughs> You're quite right. Absolutely. Yeah, I do have a quick list of possibilities. I want to confess sure I a bit more profile. Belt and Southern Room, Westminster, Stronghold, Derry, and and you get the general rest of, the store, point, yet, of things. What I want do this evening is to look at some of the key places that are identified in the text that we looked at over the last couple of weeks and to retrace the steps of David um, as he plays from Absalom and just think about why a number of these places are highlighted. And then what I'd like to do is to invite you to make a similar journey in your own minds, in your own heads here this evening. So that's the plan of what we're going to do. I've got a couple of maps here. And um, give you a bit of orientation. This one on the left, first of all, this one basically gives you a sense of the extent of David's kingdom when David was king of Israel and uh, Israel was itself in terms of political power. This gives you an idea of the extent of, now the, the darker colored area is the land that they basically uh, occupy themselves as the Israelites were with David's room these others around them here are areas that David conquered um, and, and was drawing sort of tax and tribute from these areas um, and then there's also an area up around here too um, which was a, an area where there was a, a kind of treaty arrangement where people recognised that David was the man who was in control and they bet their taxes or whatever again and it's a useful map because it just gives you a sense of the scale of what David was in control of. Never before and never since would the Israelite people have had control of such a vast area. And that's why it talks about how everything was subdued and they were in peace. Um, this is the area here which we want to focus on this evening. I'm going to go a few minutes to recognize this. I'm sure there's the, the Dead Sea and the Salt Sea. There it is again. Uh, there's Galilee and there it is up there. A few key places there is Jerusalem. Uh, so that's just to give you an idea, and this is the area and the map that we're going to work on. Would that gives you just a sense of the, the scale of what was under his control at the time when Absalom revolts against his father. And I want, therefore, to look at some of the
1: key cases. So we might have to start, we're we'll be
0: jumping around a lot here in the Bible this evening, but that would make sense. we will going to start in 2 Samuel 15 and um, that's on page uh, 319 of the copies of the Bible that's in the queue there, page 319. And uh, this is the, you'll be familiar with this if we've been here in the last few weeks. This is the beginning of the account of the Apostle of his father. Um, and it talks to the um, early verses there about how he gets up early. verse um, two, and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate whenever anyone came up before the, the king for a decision. Absalom, because the king was the final court of the Absalom would call out to where you from? And he would answer your service from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, there's no totally representative of the king hear you do. And Absalom would add, if only I were to put judge of the land, then everyone be asking to complain for a case, you'd come to me. And I would say that he receives justice. This is the bit I brought to on the politics of the village. You get the conservatives who live there saying, oh, if only we were in power in charge of the boss everything would be fine. It's the same kind of idea. And it says um, in verse 5 and 6 that this is the way developed an awesome of developed, and Absalom built the power base. And it says at the end of verse 6 he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Very deliberately, the big act on Absalom's heart. At the end of four years, verse 7, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron. And for Philippi, I gave it to the Lord. And Hebron is the first of the places that I want us to think about this evening. I'll put an arrow in that half to give you an idea of where Hebron is. Why Hebron? Why is that where Absalom wanted go? If you remember back in chapter 3 and verse 2 of 2 Samuel, it tells us there that Hebron is the place where Absalom was born, where most of the children were born. And uh, it's a place where David himself had been crowned king, first of all Judah, and then of the whole of Israel. You may remember that after death of Saul, um, there was a division in the land, you may remember that Abner, who was commander of uh, the army, one of uh, Saul's sons, uh, Ishbosheth, and basically set him up as, uh, as king. He wanted to perpetuate the family line of Saul. He wanted to gain his own power as the key commander, the key person in control. Um, and when he was doing that, David was being crowned as king of Judah, the kind of southern section here, this area here. And he was crowned king in Hebron. And Hebron was the place... We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 3 where whenever Abner realised he couldn't defeat David and it uh, was better to be on the side with him where Abner comes to visit David and take a treaty with him. It's also the place where Abner dies. You may remember Joab, the commander of David's army, isn't going to surrender his place to Abner nor risk taking second place to anybody and he kills Abner. Uh, and it's the place where Abner was buried. So, an awful lot of the early reshaping of Israel as a nation after the death of Saul uh, under David's kingship, which was quite a different kind of kingship, was all happening at this place, Hebron. And it's the place where ultimately, it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 5, in the first five verses there, that the people gathered, all the people of Israel, up, both north and south Israel and Judah came together, and that's the place where they acknowledged that David was going to be king. Uh, over the Israel. There is another question, of I mean, prior question. Why did David choose Hebron as his place to establish his kingship in Judah and then ultimately in Israel as a whole? Which is a bit further north. And at the time this is all happening in Jerusalem while well, it existed as a city but it wasn't under their control. It was still in the hands of the local people of the Jebusites why did we not use Bethlehem? In Bethlehem was a well-known place. Saul so used his own territory as his part is. Why does David use Hebron? Well, we know that he sent gifts to the leaders of Hebron whenever he was plundering some of Israel's enemies while Saul still chasing him, but then he did it with other kings or other leaders of other times as well. I reckon that David gave us a focal point of his early reign. Because Hebron is critical in the history of the people of Israel, particularly it's founded in the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I reckon David understood that if Israel as the tribes were divided in their loyalties, the one thing that they did have in common, the one place that they had in common that they could all relate to is Hebron. Because Hebron went back beyond their clan divisions. Hebron went back beyond their tribal divisions. Back to the founding father of the nation. Back to Abraham himself. And if you go back in Genesis, and you'll find in Genesis chapter 13 that Abraham lived in the vicinity of Hebron. Now Abraham was basically a nomad, a nomad, nomadic farmer and merchant. But a lot of his time was spent in this region of Hebron, uh, also known as Mamre, in uh, the Old Testament text, but it's the same place. And the other interesting thing about Hebron is, it's the first place where Abraham ever actually purchased land in that whole area. He was a woman, he'd been called by God to go and to settle in this land, and he'd been promised by God that his descendants would form a great nation and God would give them this land. But it seems as if none of it was ever to be Abraham until his wife Sarah dies. And when Sarah dies he wants somewhere to bury Sarah. And you can read the uh, account of Genesis chapter 23 um, how he meets with the local Hittite people who are there and he negotiates with them the purchase of some land. And the purchase of that land is in Hebron, And that's where Sarah is buried. It's also where Abraham is To be buried later on. It's the place where Isaac, the son of Abraham, makes his home. And particularly significant, it's also the place where Jacob, the father of the twelve sons, from whom derived the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, Jacob and Joseph, two sons, and included as you may remember, It's where he made his home. And you can read about that in Genesis 35 and Genesis 37. So here's a place that's strategic in the history of the people. It still happens today. The people want to celebrate, they want to commemorate something. Space is still important. It's still important in politics. There's a big, hard day. We're down in Dublin. There will be other meetings and rallies that will be held. And according to your political uh, viewpoint and allegiance, you will choose significant places to have rallies. To have special occasions. It happens all the time, even as individuals in as families. We very often go back to places. We go back to places we associate with our childhood, or with our birth, or with our family, even when we have long moved on from them. And it seems to me that's what David is doing here, is going back to the one place that unites Israel and establishing his kingship in Hebron. It's also interesting, I don't think it's just as significant in this case. That Hebron was designated as one of the cities of refuge. There were a number of cities identified for uh, the people of Israel as they occupied the land as cities of refuge, where if someone had committed a crime inadvertently, or particularly a crime a manslaughter, killed someone inadvertently, and they would get themselves to a the city of refuge, they would be safe there, um, and their life would not be taken to port for the life that had been taken on accidentally. <laughs> so it cities city of refuge. But I think David chooses to teach him as the commonly accepted holy brother of Israel. And David when he goes there and establishes his throne there is staking his claim to stand in that succession. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saying that he stands in the line of the He He's to find himself not with the turbulent years of Saul which were further north in the land of the territory of Benjamin. But it something that goes back and predates the great division of the tribes themselves. Now that's why Absalom was to He goes back to the place where he was born, but he goes back to the place where the people recognized his father as king. He goes back to what is potentially one of the, uh, I would put it this way, holiest sites in Israel at that time. As I said, burn mine. Jerusalem was not theirs, they didn't occupy it we have an apple there, a good an there, and that was all the common let And Absalom chooses the place very carefully. And that's no small part of why David gets outside very right
1: quickly.
0: He realises the significance of the place and the significance of what's happening and Absalom establishes himself as king in the place of his father. second place that arises in this account uh, kind of 2 Samuel 15 and following, I want to cut briefly, is the Jordan the River, because besides Jerusalem itself, where David is, Absalom has gone down to Hebron. Well, David is in Jerusalem. He hears that Absalom has pronounced uh, himself as king and has won the hearts of the people, and David then takes himself off from Jerusalem, more or less due east at first, and down to the edge of the River Jordan, and we move from the account in the text here. That's The River Jordan, which runs between the Dead Sea and Galilee, is a very important landmark, a very important division um, in the history of God's people. Eastern Jordan was the home of some of the tribes of Israel. You may remember right back in Joshua chapter 1. The Reubenites, the Galites, and the half tribe of Manasseh lived on the eastern part uh, of the Jordan River. But Joshua 3 gives us the whole story of the significance of the Jordan River for the people of God. They're all camped on the eastern side of it. Uh, Moses is dying, and Joshua is now in control. And they're about to go and possess the promised land. And what stands between them and the fulfillment of this promise, delayed for 40 years, because of their disobedience, is the river Jordan and the River Jordan you have a replay of the kind of things that are recorded in the exit that happened in the Red Sea. You have the waters being stopped, you have the people being able to walk through on the riverbed. You have them selecting stones, twelve stones, representing the twelve tribes, which are taken uh, from the bed of the river and then built into an altar, a memorial, uh, on the other side. And the crossing of the Jordan is, um, you have to pump more. Well, the watershed in the history of the people of Israel. Now he identifies himself the Jordan, and he's going historically, if you like, the wrong way. And I think there's a symbolism in this, where it's almost like a retreat. they are associated really with coming the other way that's the big story of the Jordan uh, in the history of the people of Israel. David is leaving Jerusalem because of what's happen- happening in Hemeral and Teletra, and he's crossing east. Sometimes people refer to, uh, particularly the prophets like Jeremiah, refer to going down to Egypt as part of a, an exile. It's like a second exodus, and that's what happened to Jeremiah, if you remember the story about Jeremiah, coming comes across later after David. He eventually ends up carried down into Egypt, and it's symbolic of the whole exodus of the people of God in exile because of God's judgment because of their sins. And here you've got a situation where David is heading eastward across the Jordan. And there's something symbolic about what's happening at that particular point. The next piece that features in the story um, and there's really named for us is way up here in the corner. And uh, Ahaniah. And this too has a lot of very interesting an ancient associations. In the photograph of the book of Genesis, the time is the place. But it's very closely related to the story of Jacob. And it tells us that as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him.
1: And when Jacob saw them, he
0: said, This is a camp of God, and that's what the name of the place actually
1: means. And
0: the significance of the story is, Jacob is particularly the leader at this point in his life. And he has to come and face his brother and son, he has to make his way back. But
1: he's feeling very
0: vulnerable, and he is not sure what the future is going to go for. And this is the place where he meets messengers from God. And he gives it this particular name, the camp of God. It's a place that in the history of the people of Israel is associated with God meeting his people at the point of their leave. Meeting them when they're the leader, and certainly David is feeling out of the love. And it's certainly a place where David meets messengers from God. And chapter 17 of Second Samuel, verse 27 I'll give you some background there, because when he comes to this place, there's a group of people waiting for him. And verse 28 of 17 tells us, they brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese, from cows milk, for David and his people to eat. And they said the people, have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert, and this place becomes for David a camp of God, where he meets messengers from God who provide for him at a really very difficult time. I think, more significantly than the temple in this case, it is also one of the cities of refuge in the David makes his way here, crosses the Jordan, <coughs> makes his way to this place with all its ancient associations of God meeting leaders who are believers. You are lost and unsure of the future of the soil, and meeting them in gracious the provision and care of the problem. There's something that's symbolic, something reassuring of going to one of those dedicated places associated with the provision of the government for those in the do you know the story,
1: we covered it a couple weeks ago. Why did we go in this area?
0: Um, Absalom. Pulls together in his army and he goes and crosses the Jordan after his father and a great battle in this region. The terrain is very difficult. The Bible tells us that more men died because of the because of nature of the terrain in the they were fighting than the actual battle itself. Absalom is killed by Joab, and eventually it's time for David to make his way back. But the, the political spin-off of all of this is huge. There are many people in Israel saying, Well, okay, David did a great job for us. But he ran, but and after him, do we really want him back? And there's no consensus to this particular point. And certainly the people of Judah seem to be quite slow about having David back. And you may remember that from the story as we uh, covered it a few weeks ago. And what happens is, David comes back and he crosses at this point Gilgal on the return journey. Again, hugely significant place in the history of the people of Israel. When they crossed the Jordan way back with Joshua, um, the end of the promised land on the first occasion, this was their crossing point. The other goal became the base for Joshua, from which he led the children of Israel, and end of the promised land. It's the first encampment of Israel in the promised land. It's the place where they drew those cool twelve stones we were talking about in the middle of the riverbed and set them up as a place of worship. It's the first place where they celebrated the pastorhood in the promised land. And right throughout the campaign, it was Joshua's base and the place from which he worked. It was one of the
1: three holy
0: places prepared by Samuel to make offerings to the Lord during his ministry. It's the place where Saul's kingship was affirmed. It was a rallying point for the troops of Israel throughout Saul's kingship. And again, David makes it a focal point as he crosses the Jordan to be re-established as the king of Israel. So these four places are hugely significant in the history of the people of Israel, just their names. Um, They're names that we recognize, copied up from time to time in the Bible, but they're as significant in the life of David and at the time of David as any of the names we mentioned earlier on. Like Capitol Hill, Davos, Storm, wherever. They are hugely significant. And there's no accident involved in the choice of some of these places and the use of some of these places. So what's the point I'm making? There are all cases that tell a story, and this journey tells a story. And what I want to invite you to this evening is, as we go back on this journey, to make a similar journey in our own thoughts and our own minds. This journey represents a retreat. It represents a retreat of shame. It represents a retreat of theater. David is making this journey from Jerusalem across the Jordan to a city of refuge, a place called the camp of God, where he hopes that he will meet God the same favor that his good ancestor Jacob had. And he's making this journey because of decisions that he has made in his life, bad decisions, and the consequences of which are the sin of the United States being driven from the land by his son. It all began with Bathsheba. It began with a deliberate act of adultery. It was followed up by an act of murder when he had her husband killed. It's been followed up by neglect, where he steals the function, officially, the property of the king of Israel, and neglect of his family and what has been happening there. When he failed the deal with Amnon. He raped his half-sister, Tamar. But he failed the deal properly with Absalom, who then murdered his half-brother, Amnon, as a consequence of his wife, and there's a lot of aspects of David's life that David really understands that are part and parcel of this retreat. This is just not an accident of politics. It's not just that people are bored with David. David understands that there is something going on here that follows the consequences of decisions and actions that he's made, or neglect of his part. So this is a retreat. That's why I say it's like a reversal of the way crossing of in Joshua into the promised land. Here's Israel's greatest kingdom going backwards. It's a retreat to the city of angels, of messengers. A retreat to the city of refuge and trust in the Lord. And the return to Jordan and the use of Gilgal on the way back in again after the death last of the crossing point the significant because it represents the reversal of this the it's kind of symbolic of Israel reclaiming the land of the kingdom terms It's symbolic of redemption. It's symbolic of the fact that in the grace and in the mercy of God, things can be reversed. It's symbolic of everything becoming what it was meant to be. It's a sign of God's approval, the use of the old God, of the cross of heaven. And my intention this evening, as we simply look at this journey and I think about it, is to encourage some reflection on the journey. We all make journeys in our own lives as Christians. There are things that happen to us, sometimes difficult things that happen to us. And sometimes they happen as a consequence of the decisions that we make. Or the decisions that we do. You know. Sometimes things come to us, and they come as consequence. If there are many that come to us in life, and they're not doing any consequence of our actions or our journeys. But sometimes things come to us as consequence. And the same thing, what I want to encourage us to do, is to reflect about the journeys. That so we have been, maybe not physically, but in our own hearts, in our own heads. The journeys that sometimes we make when it's harder to do. When well, the faith that we have and the confidence that we have in the grace of God and the kind of reflection of songs that we're singing and it becomes very distant. And it becomes very distant because we're on a journey. It like a journey of the truth, A journey of the thoughts. And maybe sometimes that's because of actions that we have taken. Things we have done that we all have not been done. Maybe it comes because of carelessness or but it becomes because of the things we have not done that we shouldn't Maybe it's a failure just to attend to our own spiritual value. Like David's failure to attend to the value of his family. Maybe it's a failure to attend to doing what is right. Like David failure to attend to doing what's right in quite a number of circumstances. But we go on a journey, and the journey is uncomfortable. And internally, even if nobody out there is aware of it, it is a journey of share and sharing love. And that can happen to any person. That can be part and parcel of our experience, packing up perfectly from Jerusalem, crossing the Jordan, heading somewhere, anywhere. The question is, where do we go? Whether the shame is public or private, whether the it is physical, emotional, or spiritual, where do we go when we feel like that when we're struggling as a Christian? We're struggling to hold on to our faith, we're struggling to hold on to our confidence about Christ and the death and the cross, struggling to hold on to the confidence that we are and we adopt them the family of God and God cares about us. Where do we go? David at least had a bit to go to somewhere which was associated with the mercy and provision of God. And sometimes we're not that good at the end the Sometimes we just essay but well, in fact, the thing that we should be doing is retreating to seek help. Treating to seek fellowship. we treating to find people who can bring us back to God. Help us in that journey. Messengers of God,
1: the of God.
0: <laughs> and if you're on a journey or find yourself on a journey like this at some stage in your Christian life, let me encourage you to look for a city of refuge. To look for other Christians that you can trust who will help you. Read with you, pray with you, help you see things from a biblical perspective and not purely the internal perspective that we take on things. It's very often present and very often skewed. So, where do we go when we feel like that? The danger for the individual Christian is that we just go deeper into ourselves. Or we go to a distant place that has no associations with God and His grace. And we become more and more isolated and it all feels more. David, at least, was the whiff to go to a place associated with grace, a city of refuge, a place where God, where failure and sin, is covered. He goes to a place where he can expect to meet messengers from God. The thing to do when you're struggling as a Christian is not to absent yourself from church, not to absent yourself from the people of God, or the people of God's people. It's a place you need to be, because you need that comfort. You need that encouragement. We need to hear that message of grace. And David revisits one of the great ancient sites, at least symbolically, he can himself to the care of God. It can be very difficult sometimes to pray. It can be very difficult sometimes to read the scripture. We just feel like we're in the truth. But those are the right things we need to do, for we need help to do. Where do we go? Many of us, when we we're feeling that sense of lostness, it for ourselves. Some of us, if I can view the analogy again, go back to where we came from. Some of us just wonder, lost in the The writer in Hebrews is very clear in his advice to Christians. And his advice as he writes in Hebrews 4 is simply this, go to the throne of grace. A very work, but he makes his way back to Jerusalem. <coughs> and bear in mind that that journey tells us that there is not only a place of safety and a place of grace and comfort, a place of forgiveness and you find himself in exile as a consequence of adultery, and murder yeah. When David left Jerusalem, the city, immediately you go out on the east side of the city, you go down the hill, you go down into the valley, valley. and up the other side, and this is all pretty close, it's not huge distances. If you've ever been there, you can stand on the Mount Olives, you can see Jerusalem very clear, you can see the wall very clearly. So the first part of his journey took around Jerusalem down the valley and up Mount of Olives. And that's what's referring to there in verse 30. And the Mount of Olives hardly ever Teaches in the Old Testament. I had to do a search for it to see how it was, to see the Mount of Olives referred to the Old Testament. How we ever have And this is one of the very few references. But it got me thinking about another journey that was made out of Jerusalem, we came down out of the Mount of Olives. It's, it it's a journey recorded for us in all of the
1: Gospels.
0: The journey recorded for us in John chapter where in John chapter 15 verse 1, John says, Jesus crossed into the path and went to prayer. He went to prayer and found in the garden of, of the And this journey that David made down the hill and up the other side, the weeping as he went, was a journey that Jesus also made straight after the Passover and the Supper. <coughs> it's a journey which for him had as has much to do with tears as it did with because Gethsemane was that place where he wrestled with the prayer, but We get some small insight as to the passion of Christ at that particular point as he anticipated the cross that lay ahead for him and called on his disciples to pray and were able to keep up with what was going on. And it just talks about Jesus' stress there, and a stress that was a murder in a pain almost <laughs>
1: of the distress to deal with.
0: And what was the consequence of that?
1: The consequence of that was not only crucifixion, but resurrection.
0: It was a journey that was made with a heavy heart, with much grief, with great tears, with much shame and physical pain associated with it, but it was a journey that was ultimately to result in resurrection. We all make journeys in our lives as Christians, and sometimes they are journeys that retreat rather than journeys going forward and side. You find yourself in a situation of retreat. You can also look yourself about well,
1: why not be used.
0: Look for a place of refuge. Don't simply retreat into yourself. Don't fall into the trap of God cannot be with you. Look for a place of refuge and the messengers of God who will sustain you, pray for you, comfort you, and encourage you. And believe this, there is a way back. There is a way back to you. There is a way back to you. There really is no such thing as a Christian who forever
1: lives in the margins and never had God. This is God's way even in the midst of those thoughts.